Grammar Girl here. I'm Mignon Fogarty. This week, I have a quick and dirty tip about the plural of Batman and a meaty middle about why even smart people struggle with Shakespeare. Let's get started. Michelle, who's a language arts teacher in Culver City, asked, What is the plural of Batman? And it's a good question. Many people have asked me this over the last few years. Do you talk about seven Batmans or seven Batmen? Well, I think of Batman as a name because you'd say, hey, there's Batman, not hey, there's a Batman or hey, there's the Batman. And Batman is usually capitalized like a name is capitalized. So we usually make names plural by just adding an S to the end. So like you'd say there are seven Mikes at the party or seven Emilys in your history class, you'd say there have been seven Batmans over the years. That's the grammatically correct way to make a name plural. But when I explain it that way, a lot of people don't seem to like the answer. So I get the sense that Batman is more popular. Or maybe the people who like Batman are just more vocal. To make it even more complicated, there was an animated Batman television series called Batman the Brave and the Bold. And it had an episode that aired in 2011 called Night of the Batman. And a 2017 DC comic book featured a storyline where seven evil Batman emerged from the dark multiverse. And they do call them Batman. So that makes me think that in the Batman universe, Batman is the preferred form. The comic book press still capitalizes Batman, so it's hard to argue that they're using Batman generically, and that's why it's capitalized. But not much excites me less than parachuting into a fandom I don't know much about, telling them something they all agree on is canon, is wrong. Not gonna do it. In the end, I conclude that although normally, if it's a name, the plural of Batman is Batman's, in the Batman universe, the preferred plural is Batman, especially when there's a group of them that isn't the Batman. I put a poll on the transcript of this podcast at quickanddirtytips.com so you can vote on which form you prefer. Just search the site for what is the plural of Batman. And now on to Shakespeare with an excerpt from John McWhorter's book, Words on the Move. To truly know that a word is a thing ever in flux can help us understand the language of the past, or why the language of the past can be so hard to fully understand. Have you ever attended a Shakespeare play and kept to yourself, as everyone around you was exclaiming how wonderful it was, that you missed so much of what any of the characters were saying that you'd be hard-pressed to say you took in the plot in any detail? My sense over the years has been that asking people about this creates precisely the same discomfort as asking if they floss every night. Commonly, we're told that Shakespeare language is high, such that the challenge can be met by making a certain effort. Related to this is the idea that Shakespeare's language is poetic, requiring more effort to process than the phraseology of Neil Simon. Then someone will say that the language comes across best with careful acting technique, ideally wielded by British people. All these claims, except the one about the Brits, are true. However, many will be nagged by a feeling that there's more to the story, and there is. When in Hamlet, Polonius opens his farewell speech to Laertes, 
neither a borrower nor a lender be, with, And these few precepts in thy memory, see thou character, rising to a challenge can take us only so far. We can indeed process precepts, thy and thou, with the aforesaid rising. But what does Polonius mean by character? Neither intonation, facial expression, being British, nor rising will get across that in Shakespeare's time, character meant right, as in the characters that one writes. Polonius is telling Laertes, in short, note these things well. At the very start of Measure for Measure, Duke Vincentio announces, Of government the properties to unfold would seem in me to affect speech and discourse. Since I'm put to know that your own science exceeds in that the lists of all advice my strength can give you, then no more remains. The reason we could grasp almost no meaning from this when spoken in real time, it might get little more even in reading it on the page, is not that the language is poetic. There isn't a Wordsworthian word in the passage, yet one rises to this only to bump one's head. The problem is that so many of the words no longer mean what they did 400 years ago. And that's exactly what we'd expect. Shakespearean text looks and sounds like the language we speak. Skim a text and usually no word leaps out as utterly unexpected. This is much of why we're told the task is simply to buck up. However, lurking behind the familiarity are many false friends of the kind students are warned about in learning French. Sensible means sensitive in French rather than level-headed. If you hear or read sensible in French, thinking it refers to common sense, you've missed something basic without even knowing it. In the same way, in the measure-for-measure passage, effect for Shakespeare meant to make a pretense of, while science meant knowledge. Thrown by both of those when hearing this in real time, not to mention the now unconventional use of unfold in reference to speaking, we end up lost. Not because we're uncultured or incapable of effort, but because language is always moving. It's done a lot of that since 1600. Another example is Edmund's cocky speech about his origins in King Lear. Wherefore should I stand in the plague of custom, and permit the curiosity of nations to deprive me, for that I am some twelve or fourteen moonshine's leg of a brother? To know that wherefore meant why is hardly a stretch, and we can likely agree that moonshine's for month is poetic. All rise. However, why curiosity? Wherefore should I permit the curiosity of nations to deprive me? With our poetic hats on, we're poised to interpret it as meaning something peculiar, but that meaning makes no sense here. The curiosity of nations can't mean that nations are a peculiar concept, since they aren't. But if curiosity more immediately reminds us of a healthy interest in matters outside oneself, then why is Edmund implying that curiosity is a bad thing? Well, because in Shakespeare's time, curiosity meant care, in the sense of close attention. In 1664, someone we would now call a scientist wrote about the resolution power of lenses, exclaiming that if the state of the art in his time, quote, could attain to that curiosity as to grind us such glasses, we might hazard at last the discovery of spiritualities themselves, unquote. 
But was this man implying that astronomers of the time simply lacked sufficient interest in their own subject to bother to fashion more powerful lenses? It's weird little things like this that make antique prose so often seem a tad off, as if people then were incapable of expressing themselves quite as lucidly as we do today. Actually, though, this writer was quite lucid, if we read curiosity in the passage as meaning carefulness or precision, then all is clear. By curiosity, then, Edmund means fine distinctions, such as the kind that would label him as inferior for not being the eldest brother. To make such distinctions implies a certain interest, and over time that interest became the core meaning of the word itself— such that today we associate curiosity with schoolchildren, museums, and cats. However, in our times, the word has morphed into connoting not just interest, but something more specific, the positive kind of interest. Before things had gone that far, however, the curious person's interest could also be of a less welcome kind. In 1680, a bishop mentioned that the opposition of heretics anciently occasioned too much curiosity among the fathers. This is the flavor in Edmund's use of curious, and the issue is less of poetry than the mere passage of time and its effects on arbitrary linkages between word and meaning. Way back in 1898, the Shakespearean scholar Mark H. Liddell argued in the Atlantic Monthly that these false friends in Shakespeare were such an impediment to understanding his language delivered live that it was time to include instruction in Elizabethan English in Americans' national secondary school curriculum. Of course, given the dazzling array of problems with public education in America, few could be under any impression that this could ever happen today or in any kind of foreseeable future. As such, others have argued that after 400 years, because of normal processes of change, Shakespeare's language has become different enough from ours that the time has come to offer new versions of the plays translated into today's English. Yes, I have been one of those people and have experienced resistance and even dribbles of vitriol in response. However, most of this resistance has been based on the idea that the difference between our language and Shakespeare's is only one of poetry, density, or elevation. The reason Shakespeare's prose sounds so poetic is partly because it is, but it's also partly for the more mundane reason that his language is now, to a larger extent than we might prefer to know, inaccessible to us without careful study on the page. Many assume that the translation I refer to would have to be into slang. I suspect this is because it can be so hard to perceive that the very meanings of even the most mundane words have often changed so much. If one thinks the difficulty of the language is merely a matter of poetry, then it's easy to think that no translation in neutral current English could be at issue, and hence the notion of, yo, what up, Calpurnia, is a serious literary suggestion. But I, for one, intend no such thing. The translations could easily be better termed adjustments. Here's Macbeth, planning to kill Duncan. Besides, this Duncan hath borne his faculties so meek, hath been so clear in his great office that his virtues will plead like angels, trumpet-tongued, against the deep damnation of his taking off. English, yes, but let's pause for a bit. 
Just how does one bear one's faculties or be clear in one's office? Taking off? Where to? And remember that this is about hearing these lines spoken live, with no chance to review them on the page or think about them. What follows is the passage in Conrad Spoke's translation, changing only those words that can no longer speak to us. About 10%, according to the linguist David Crystal and his son, the actor Ben Crystal, who've advised the Globe Theatre in London on the original pronunciation of Shakespeare's plays. Besides, this Duncan hath borne his authority so meek, hath been so pure in his great office, that his virtues will plead like angels, trumpet-tongued, against the deep damnation of his knocking off. This is hardly a desecration. The language is still challenging and even beautiful, especially since most of it's the original. The difference is simply that words that today only a scholar can hear live and understand have been replaced with ones that all educated people can hear with meaning. The translation isn't pure Shakespeare, but there's an argument that the trade-off is worth it. Quite simply, changing faculties to authority, this Duncan hath borne his authority so meekly, and taking off to knocking off, will plead like angels against his knocking off, allows us to understand what the man is saying. Neither I nor anyone else wants to see the original plays withdrawn from circulation. However, a world where the usual experience of a Shakespeare play outside universities was in today's English would be one where, quite simply, more people were capable of truly understanding and enjoying the bard's work, rather than genuflecting to it. Seeing Shakespeare shouldn't be like eating your vegetables, even tasty vegetables. Nor is it much more inspiring for us to treat Shakespeare as a kind of verbal wallpaper or scent that we sit back and allow to wash over us. I highly suspect Shakespeare himself, hearing so many today espousing this approach to his words, would have been at best bemused and at worst disappointed. Shakespeare translated into today's English wouldn't be exactly Shakespeare, no. But given a choice between Shakespeare as an elite taste— and Shakespeare engaged the way Russians engage Chekhov and Americans engage Scorsese films and Arrested Development, some may judge Shakespeare that isn't always exactly what Shakespeare wrote as less than a tragedy. I've been pleased to see that since the 1990s, when I first laid down my own case for the translation of Shakespeare, the notion seems to have gained a certain amount of traction. Mr. Spoke, as well as Kent Richmond of California State University, Long Beach, have actually executed translated versions of the plays. And as I write, the Oregon Shakespeare Festival has commissioned modern translations of the entire corpus. To the extent that the approach gathers steam, many will certainly decry it as a desecration, a symptom of the dumbing down of American society. However, others will feel that translating Shakespeare is a pragmatic response to the fact that language always changes, and that when it comes to Shakespeare, quite simply, it's been a while. That was a lightly edited excerpt from John McWhorter's book, Words on the Move, Why English Won't and Can't Sit Still, Like Literally. Run here with permission. Thanks this week to people who left reviews and told me where they listen. YJ Dave listens in Toronto, Canada, while on a treadmill or on a bike on the way to a treadmill. 
Trilogy Jab has been listening since 2006 while walking the dog, while out at sea with the Coast Guard, or while running errands. Thanks for listening for so long. Paul in Joplin listens while bird watching at the lake near his house. I feel like I should insert a duck joke here, but since you obviously love birds, I will refrain. And Aaron listens while cutting soybeans in Kansas. And also thank you to Corpin1142, who left a nice review for my tip-a-day calendar, The Grammar Daily. It was out of stock at Amazon for a few days, but it's back. And of course, you should also be able to ask your favorite bookstore to order it for you. I'm Mignon Fogarty, better known as Grammar Girl. This show is part of the Quick and Dirty Tips podcast network. You can find all my old articles and podcasts at quickanddirtytips.com. And while you're there, check out all the other great podcasts in the network, too, like The Get It Done Guy and Money Girl. That's all. Thanks for listening.